Good evening, everybody. This is Anas Ghanem. I'm from Qatar Foundation. Today, we will gathered here to discuss the role of youth and education in combating climate change. We believe that education is an important component in our fight towards combating climate change. We need to educate and inspire our students to transform our world. Today, I'm very delighted to be joined by an incredible group of six students from Qatar and Scotland. We have Julia Penna, a student at Doha Modern School and is the Secretary General of Thaiman Qatar. And we have Abdullah Darwish, uh, President of the MUN program in Qatar at his school at Qatar Academy. And we have Sama Ayoub, a student at Wild Cornell University in Qatar, studying medicine, and is the, vice, is the former president of uh, MUN at her school as well, focusing on climate change last year. And then we have Minna Labib from the University of Edinburgh. She's a PhD student uh, focusing on, um, on greenhouse gases. And she also has been working on an, a MOOC on uh, climate action technologies. And next we have Max Browning from the University of Edinburgh as well. He's majoring in both Chinese and Russian, both very difficult yet very important languages. He happens to speak six languages as well uh, and has uh, founded uh, Scotland, One, One Scotland, uh, a nonprofit that uh, helps uh, international students get together uh, in uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow. And we also have um, Galina Tatuva, uh, she's a PhD student uh, also studying greenhouse gases and she's uh, been um, uh, working on an online MOOC uh, that talks about uh, climate uh, solutions. Thank you so much for joining us. What an inspiring and uh, powerful group of students. Uh, before we get started into our panel, uh, we'd like to present to you a video that captures uh, our youth manifesto that our students developed after uh, going to pre-COP26 in Milan last month. Uh, they were an inspiring group of 10 students who joined us at in negotiations and conversations in Milan when we were there with Qatar Foundation and Earth Day as well. Uh, our students were at the for forefront of discussions and they got a chance to share their message and requests to leaders. Here's a quick video that captures their message uh, that they've shared in Milan. We are here to turn conversations into action. نود اعتبار الفئات المهمشه مثل شباب والنساء وذوي الاعاقه والذين يعيشون تحت خط الفقر شركاء اصليين في حل هذه المشكله We already have solutions we always have and these are drawn from historical architecture that doesn't damage the ecosystem We don't want the focus to be covering on past failures نطالب بالمساءله والتصرف بشكل ناضج We need more youth led education for advocacy like Thaiman Qatar which is an extracurricular program لماذا هذا البرنامج خارج المنهج ولماذا ليس لديه مثله في المدرسه Are we really building sustainable futures or are we educating generations for more of the same It is through education that we will make changes. And through media. It's not about teaching us climate action advocacy. We already know what we need to do. And other marginalized communities. Amplify those voices. So we can truly turn conversations into action.
as you can see, very powerful voices here. Uh, we believe in the power of youth, and we think that they should be at the forefront of these discussions, and we believe in giving them the platform to share their thoughts. They're ready, they just need to be given that platform, and we're very excited to have uh, him here, them here joining us uh, in Glasgow. We've been at Glasgow for about five days. It's been very cold, but very worth it. We've been having incredible discussions at different uh, events and venues and speaking directly to politicians. Uh, I'll let our students tell you a little bit more about their experience and what they've been seeing. Um, so, Abdullah, would you like to tell us how has been COP26 for you? Uh, yeah. It's been your fifth, fifth day so far. Everything I expected, actually. I, was, I met a lot of new people from the Qatari delegation, especially. I was visiting uh, pavilions, met real world leaders, uh, Minister of Environment, uh, Secretary of uh, Environment of the United States, John Kerry, Secretary of Energy of the United States, um, Minister of Energy and uh, Ministry of Environment Canada and Kenya, Kenya right here actually. So we met and got involved with the real world leaders, and I think that was a great experience, which was one of actually my, which was my message towards COP in the Youth for Climate in Milan. So I'm really excited and I'm really, I feel really accomplished that I set out my goals and I've accomplished them here in COP. Wow, that's amazing. Can you tell me a little bit more about that uh, meeting with um, the Italian ministry? Uh, so was this a follow-up of your trip in Milan? Yes, this is a follow-up of pre-COP in Milan where we attended the Youth for Climate between um, an event campus and uh, a museum there where we saw different people, experiences, and we met with great and, and really interesting people like uh, Mr. Garcia, who was a journalist living in Afghanistan for 21 years. We learned from his experiences and his impact on how climate impacted him. And it was a really great experience. And we got a glimpse of the world leaders and seeing the, how they were interacting with us. And here, especially at COP26, we got involved with them. Uh, we just came from a meeting with uh, the Youth for Climate where the Italian Minister of, of Environment and the President of COP26 were uh, attended, listening to the voices of youth and implementing the manifesto, which was an incredible experience, especially for me as a young person. That's amazing, and I'm happy to tell you that part of your input from this video was also shared in the official manifesto that was shared in, uh, in the meeting. So congratulations again. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and Julia, I, I heard you stalk down Greta at, uh, in Milan at Freecov. How was that experience seeing her in person? She's a very inspiring uh, climate activist that, yeah, that you've been following for a long time. Yeah, she, um, seeing her in person really brought to reality the entire movement. But I have to say that the, the main takeaway from that was a discussion we had um, and just the power in her words and the motivation behind everything she does is something that I really took away from that. Um, just the sheer motivation um, in everything she does is something I think we can all learn from. And as Abdullah was saying, the meeting with the ministers just now and discussing what we'd done in Youth for Climate, I have to disagree ever so slightly with Abdullah. Um, not enough has been done. And so I think we need to commend the the actions and the, what has been done, but I think more needs to take, um, we need to take more action and there needs to be more impact. And so, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being honest. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, Sama, can you tell us a little bit more as well about your experience in COP and yeah. how has it been to you know be here? I'm sure it's been an overwhelming for five days. Yeah, so it's definitely been great. It's awesome to see that youth are actually present. We're like a unified force that we're already here. Um, 
discussing climate change and climate action, we usually see it online. We talk to our own peers and it's very local based when you're in your own country. But coming here, seeing that there are people from around the world sharing the same concerns as you and hoping to create their own initiatives within their own communities in order to tackle climate change. It was really amazing to see that all of us are focused as youth towards one issue and are willing to do what it takes. Um, I'd like to add on to what Julia said, and we were, I was also present at the discussion. Um, considering that in Milan, this manifesto was made in order to be discussed by leaders and see that really help youth implement what they want to see in climate action. It was very concerning to see that it was still taken as an opportunity for um, ministers and governments to brag about their own accomplishments when usually this was supposed to be a place for these ministers to really implement what these youth put forward and what have they've worked on. And like Julia and Abdul were both present in Milan and both worked on what was presented today. And so it was concerning that not, despite having the platform, despite having the opportunity to discuss this, we still robbed ourselves of that opportunity and continue to brag about what we're already doing rather than looking forward and making sure that youth voice is actually being acknowledged and not heard. Wow, uh, how do you think we can fix that? Like, what do you think is missing here? Listen to us, honestly. Okay. Um, the youth were present there. The manifesto is there, but nothing is being listened to. It was taken as an opportunity for governments to really um, feel, give themselves a pat on the back for what they were already doing. But we already know that what we're already doing is not enough. We're just below six years. If what we were already doing is enough, we would have solved climate, climate, the climate change crisis. But clearly it's not. And so maybe if we actually listen to what's already been given to you by the youth themselves and prepared for you very detailed, I'd like to quote that from um, being present there. A minister actually said that it's very detailed and encompasses everything that we need to do, but we're still not acknowledging it. So I think the fault is at the fact that our ministers and our governments aren't really acknowledging what we're doing. And maybe we should have the youth next time administer a conference like this rather than the governments themselves, I believe so. No, that's, you're absolutely right. I think youth do have a strong role here and they need to be more involved in the decision process of course. and make sure that their voice is actually heard. Which brings me to my next question. If uh, one of our students from the University of Edinburgh would ask, would answer it. Um, how do you think we can incorporate more climate education into schools? How do you think we can teach our students on climate change and the issue and what we need to do? Um, Minna, would you like to take that? Um, yeah, sure. So. Education is a bit of a hot topic, especially today. Um, I think that the education system needs a good hard look. We need to take a good hard look at the education system. Um, things like the climate crisis and the other challenges that we face, for example, the COVID pandemic, they cut across everything. They cut across all the subjects that are taught. They cut across all the specialties. So in higher education, whether you're studying economics or whether you're studying engineering or languages, these things are part of the climate crisis and they feed into it and they also have solutions for it. So having a holistic approach to education, having an intersectional, interdisciplinary approach is, is key. Well, that's a great point. You're absolutely right. And do you think, um, how far are we uh, into making that happen? What's missing right now? I think we're still at the very beginning. The conversations have started, which is a good thing, uh, but it's, it's still baby steps and a lot more needs to be done a lot quicker. Um, the youth that are engaged in the climate crisis are here because they educated themselves on it as opposed to having that education formally or through their organizations. Um, 
So there's still we're still at the very, very beginning. Not much progress has been made. And I'd also like to see that extended into informal education. So I think that's a very important topic that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it absolutely is important. And I think um, seeing all of you as a great example is, uh, is a wonderful example of you know what we can achieve by involving youth in these programs and teaching them about climate change. Because you know, they're empowered. You're empowered, you're ready, you just need to know what it is and what you how what you can do with it. Um, Max, do you wanna um, add anything to that? And like, uh, you're a bachelor student now. Yeah. Um, so you just got recently graduated from high school. Did you have any climate change education during your education? Uh, was uh, it missing? And how do you think we can incorporate it more? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say, um, at school, at high school, the amount of information that was taught on climate change and, and global heating um, was pretty poor. Um, I think this is due to, as um, Minna's mentioned, there being a lack of an integrated approach to climate education. We can't just have uh, a subject which is called environmentalism or climate change that's taught and for an hour a week, um, if that, you know, it's not enough. There has to be an integration of climate change and the, uh, the consequences of climate change into all the subjects that we teach at schools because it does affect every part of our lives. And, I would say that it is now Friday, the end of Friday at COP26, so my take on COP so far has been that it's fantastic that it's taking place in physical form, it has to take place in physical form, but at the same time there has been a sense that not enough has been done, that we're running out of time, this is possibly the most important conference in world history. So has enough been done so far? I would say that the, the atmosphere here is positive, but it's it's a self-congratulatory atmosphere of we've done this, we're, work, you know, we're sort of working towards this, but there's not really a, uh, an urgent sense of, of changing the game dramatically and restructuring things. What I also say is um, it's great to have different sectors here. You know, finance it, it has a quite a large presence here. Um, but there needs to be a genuine effort across all sectors to play their part. And I think part of that uh, is very importantly, including the opinions of the young generation, of our generation, the generation that will suffer uh, the hardest from, from the effects of climate change. So uh, more can still be done, um, and uh, I hope that we see that happen in the next week. Now, you mentioned something about the environment being too positive. Uh, do you think we should be panicking? <laughs> yeah, we should definitely be panicking. <laughs> Everyone should be panicking. And th the fact is, you know, if you're 90 or if you're 85, I can see why you wouldn't panic, because you're sitting there thinking, this is the close of my life, you know, I don't have that long left. But for us, you know, <laughs> we may hopefully have decades to come. So of course we're panicking, and it is very frustrating as young people to sit here and think, have we actually had any constructive or positive input into this process? Is what we're doing here today worth it? And the fact that you know you've managed to get six students here to this panel, I think, is is quite novel. That a lot of the panels here uh, are quite old in terms of the average age. Um, in general, it's also been difficult as as observers to attend the actual negotiations as well, which have uh, often been quite restricted um, and uh, difficult to get into. So did you get a chance to observe any of the negotiations? I, I did, one or two. I ended up sitting next to Alok Sharma, which was <laughs> quite lucky. But that, I think, is an exception. And most of the, the, 
the parties and the observers that are here um, have really struggled to, to get into events and to contribute effectively to events as well. So something to bear in mind uh, as we come out of this COP, it, this is not the end. At the end of this COP, we won't have succeeded in any, in any way. You know, we may have agreed upon a few things, but are we implementing it? Only time will tell. Uh, absolutely right. And like following through these promises, are we going to make them happen or are we just going to talk about them? Exactly. Um, which brings me to my next point with um, uh, you, Galina. We talked about panicking and, uh, you, know, you know, we need to panic and look, uh, look at the urgency of the issue. How do you think we can turn in this panic into impactful action and meaningful conversations? Because, you know, throwing out a word saying, like, we need to save the planet today is, you know, right, but at the same time is not realistic. Uh, you're a PhD student now, you're focusing on greenhouse uh, gases that come from, you know, forests, which is quite imp impressive. Um, what do you think, you know, uh, what do you think needs to be done to turn this panic into positive action? Thank you, Anna. That's a really good question. Um, so the problem with... First of all, I, I would like to say that, yes, it is time to panic because it is a very urgent situation. We are in the time of a climate and a biodiversity crisis and even an emergency. Um, so the panic is a bit inevitable, but the most important thing is to not let this panic turn into inaction, not turn into just being completely overwhelmed and not doing anything. So instead, um, I'm going to quote Greta here, um, in action there is hope, so we need to keep doing things. And I would say that how do we turn panic into impactful action? Education is a very important first step. I'm going back to what some of my colleagues on the panel said earlier, that we need to raise awareness, we need to educate people, and in a way today there have been a lot of positive discussions, um, because today was the uh, under the theme of young people and education and there have been some very encouraging commitments from ministers globally that were committing to incorporate uh, climate education more into their school curriculums and also they were talking about providing more resources to facilitate that so yeah um, my main messages for turning the panic into action is keep doing things and don't let um, anxiety and depression overwhelm you. And keep in mind that there are a lot of other um, like-minded people who are also there um, fighting the good fight. So thank you. That's me for oh, now. Thank you so much. That's, that's great. And uh, I'd like to move back to you, Sama. And you are now studying medicine at Cornell yes. University in Qatar. And that you're very passionate about the environment, but you know, you're not studying something that's very specific you know, to climate change. How do you think um, that, um, do you think that this is just a specific issue for people that study it? Or do you think that there is a cross-cutting uh, cross across different um, uh, majors? Um, of course not. Uh, climate change is affecting all of us, so it really involves all of us. Whether we like to get as involved as others or not, it really does affect us all equally. And perhaps not equally in terms of the sense that we're all exactly affected by the same way, but in the end, we're all going to be impacted in one way or another. Whether you study more about climate change or not, you're going to be impacted in the end if no action is taken. So you bring up the point about medicine and whether um, it's still relevant to... Um, climate change or not, of course it's still relevant. But I really want to go back to the point of 
whether I chose to study medicine or not, I really should be educated on climate change in high school and in middle school and in primary school without having to go out of my way to find out more. And I think there's a fault in our education systems and our school curriculums and how we're not really um, ensuring that our students are getting the right education on climate change on something that is going to be affecting them very, very soon. It's not something that is going to happen in decades. It's something that's going to happen in less than six years. So why aren't we being educated about it? And another thing is, um, for me to get involved with climate action and climate change, I had to do this through extracurricular activities like Model United Nations. And this doesn't make sense to me because I had to go out of my way to participate in Model United Nations and find out more and really involve myself in the issue. But what, not everyone has access or not everyone has the same opportunity to really get involved in such activities and any initiatives or any, let's say, um, conferences like I'm here but not all the youth are here as well so it's not the same opportunities then why is it that someone like me who's equally passionate doesn't have the same opportunity to learn about climate change and so I think that we really should focus on educating our youth within by embedding uh, climate change and climate action uh, issues within our school curriculums it should be something that's equal for everyone I don't have to go out of my way in order to learn it so whether I'm I decide to be an engineer decide to be a doctor or decide to be a teacher I still know about climate change and I'm still actively using my passion to become a doctor to also educate others around me about climate change. So I think it really affects us all. So despite what path you choose in life, you really should, we all should have the same equal opportunity to show initiative towards climate action. I really love the thing you said about um, if this is something that I want to do, why do I have to, to go out of my way to study it? Why isn't it part of my curriculum? Uh, and you're a part of this program and it's an extracurricular program. How do you think we can bring in more programs like Feynman into the actual curriculum and the education that uh, students are studying? So of course, Model United Nations is one of the programs that is very strong in the way that it educates youth and makes them empowered enough to understand issues and not only climate change issues in general, our world issues and really act on them. But the problem is, is Model United Nations, of course, like I mentioned earlier, it's an extracurricular activity. So what we should be doing is seeing what these skills are, what, what skills are these students benefiting from? What are they gaining from programs like this, from these initiatives? And making sure that they're implemented within the school curriculum. So our learnings of outcomes shouldn't be content based only. It shouldn't be, oh, my student knows this much information about climate change. Instead, it should be my student is equipped with the right skills and the right information and the right resources to take action about an issue that concerns them. So I think the approach itself with education should be in a way that enables students to take initiative and create their own, own initiatives where they're leading them. And it's not just adults leading them and the students just tagging along, really. I think we need to empower our youth because we are very capable. That sounds like the ideal education system. Uh, are you... I noticed that you know, a lot of the things that you said resonated with like service learning. Uh, have you done any of that? Uh, have you experienced that in your school? So within, uh, within service learning, I've been involved in a lot of aspects with service learning in terms of creating initiatives that are not necessarily climate change related. But as a Feynman uh, Qatar previous executive, uh, we ensured that the theme, the theme of the conference when I was the Secretary General was climate action. And so we ensured that climate action was very present in everything the students do. So whether you're writing a resolution, writing a research report, whether you're a delegate, a student officer, an admin, whatever you were, you're really still involved with the issue. So our research reports came with an extra section that really focused on climate action and organization students can get involved in. There is also SDG booklets, which basically 
gave students the resources, the, uh, the methodology and everything that they needed to create their own initiatives without the help of, let's say, adults or relying on others but themselves. And so in the end, we really empowered the youth to create their own initiatives. That's really amazing. Um, Abdullah, were you involved in that? Uh, when Sama was the president and she organized the... It was a really fun experience, actually. <laughs> Thaiman was a really good conference. Sama was in charge. Who was the online one? There was uh, Sema was in charge of two conferences, but the one I remember vividly was the one where she went into action and brought service projects back home to Qatar, which I think was an amazing opportunity. Uh, at that year in Simon, each committee room, which is which held almost 30 students, would go out into the real world and do some tasks that would actually benefit the environment. We took our conversations uh, we had in the the committee rooms, debates, negotiations, etc. People wearing what my attire. Then we went to plant some trees so we could see people in suits and ties talking about what they would do, actually take the action. So we would have people take off their shoes, take off the ties, put on some trainers and plant some trees. So the people in the rooms making the decisions, talking about the solutions, actually took some action, which I think was good training for the future generation of world leaders and change makers to actually get involved in climate action. That's really powerful. So you made them walk the talk, literally, right after their conversations. Uh, I'd like to move to you, Julia, and ask you, um, how do you think we can empower more student-led programs? We heard great examples from uh, Abdullah and Sama and everybody else. Uh, how can we encourage more student-led community engagement programs that do contribute to the climate issue and other issues as well? Well, I think what links all of our all of our answers here today um, is that we are centered around providing local solutions to the issues, empowering the local youth through what is happening in our own communities. And so that's everything that you've heard Sama and Abdullah and the students from the University of Edinburgh talk about is exactly this. Um, we need to ensure that we are showing the exact specific impacts of this global issue on local communities to motivate people and show them how relevant the issue is to their own lives, their own homes. That is how I think you push people. You show them the urgency without creating panic necessarily, but showing them that it is something that they need to contribute to actively. And that is how you get people out of committee rooms, planting trees and contributing to their environment. No, that's amazing. And um, have you done any of that uh, during your time you know, as the, as the deputy president uh, last year and president this year? Have you uh, been able to empower such programs? Yeah, absolutely. By inviting local stakeholders and having them explain their situation, explain their work, and then uh, service projects, which are locally based, so the tree planting events, this, uh, the beach cleaning, um, the mental health festival, so really spanning everywhere from climate action to other um, sustainable development goals and other issues, and showing them how these issues are interlinked and how key it is to act on them together. Um, again, as Minna was saying, the intersectionality of the issue, that's something that we highlight, but through the local uh, change makers and through local projects. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's brilliant. And, and um, what has been uh, the most uh, challenging uh, thing to, to make this happen? Well, I think that we stress how involved the youth is, and we absolutely are, but it is a percentage of the youth. 
Um, and so the, our challenge really is to um, involve as many people as possible. The people that do not regularly attend Mall United Nations, we need to capture their attention through other projects. So this was the challenge with us. We want to make sure that the normal attendees are participating, they're getting out of their um, conference attire and doing something different. And the people that were never in the conference attire to begin with are doing whatever they can in the fields that they take part in. Everything from music to drama to um, history and politics. Thank you so much, uh, Abdullah. Do you want to share any other challenges as well that you think uh, you've been through while you were organizing uh, student-led programs? I think one of the biggest challenges, not just for me, like how the ones I experienced, but the ones many of the young people will experience, is getting the right resources and the right education and the right background and the right people to do the initiatives you want to do. Personally, I came across these problems, but I had teachers and I had resources and I had organizations like Qatar Foundation, which actually helped provide all the things I need and all things necessary. Qatar Foundation provided me with the education I needed, the resources, the teachers, the programs, the departments, in order to move on and do my project, which is an amazing experience and something I'll always be grateful for. But we need more Qatar Foundations around the world and we need more resources and more educators to go into these community Julia was talking about that aren't MUN based and help them take their programs, their dreams and make put them into reality and to, to and to do what they and to do what I'm doing right now, which is accomplish their goals. No, you're absolutely right. And I think you being here is a great example for other organizations and other communities to adopt the same. And we're very happy to be here at Earth Day as well. Uh, who have been, you know, a leading organization in climate literacy and have been doing very similar work to us. So I think we're getting there. Uh, I'd like to move to our students from the University of Edinburgh, uh, see what you think on this uh, topic of how do we, in, how do we create more <laughs> student-led programs? Uh, how do we empower students to create student-led programs? So I think students are doing quite a good job, actually. I think that the youth are engaged they're trying their best. And I don't think that we need to encourage them to, to do more projects. I think that we need to give them a space to do what they want to do. We shouldn't be dictating to them what they want to do. We should be giving them a space. We should be making sure that that space is safe because youth is not a uniform you know, group of people. It's quite diverse. And that space has to accommodate for all these people and all, all their needs. And I also want that space to provide them with the skills that they may need, the funding that they may need, the support in whatever form that they may need. And um, you could be quite amazed every what people are capable of doing, just given the opportunity to, to, to let what's in them out into the world. So I think that's the most important thing. Um, and I think instead of expecting the youth to reach out to power, I'd like to see power reach out to the youth. I love the phrase. Uh, I love that phrase so much. And, and what do you think um, is hindering youth from getting there if they are empowered and excited, like you're saying? Is this something that they need to be educated more on? Or is it more of an institutional issue of schools and universities and communities not giving the youth the right opportunities? Um, I think it's more institutional. I don't think that the youth uh, I don't. I wouldn't put the responsibility on the youth. I think it's more of an institutional problem, um, not just in, in within schools and universities. I think it's a wider community um, structural hierarchical problem. 
and um, quite frankly, the the old hierarchy isn't working, so it needs an overhaul. Thank you. You're absolutely right, and I'd like to hear from you, Max, on this. Uh, so you've started uh, One Scotland, um, and you work with students from across Glasgow and different parts of Scotland who are coming from different countries to study in, in Scotland uh, and you were able to bring them all together through your platform. Um, what do you think uh, what do you think was the hardest thing for you to make this happen and how do you think we can you what's your like advice for other youth who want to do the same? Well I think uh, perhaps the hardest thing about that was that our societies in, in many ways are not designed to be easy to integrate other nationalities into. So for example, we, we've seen in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow, it's a very welcoming city. You know, both are very, very welcoming cities, and that makes the jobs easier. But there isn't the level of multicultural, multinational uh, collaboration, dialogue that, that we want to, to see. And we need that in order to tackle these global challenges more effectively. We have to have a network of people who are brought together by mutual respect and understanding and who can work together effectively to tackle and find solutions to these, to these problems. The other thing that I would say is that there is no point in disassociating oneself from the climate crisis. So, for example, if you think you're safe because you're in Europe and you're surrounded by green fields, it rains regularly, you know, you, you don't have, you have access to good education, you have access to food regularly, you, you might think, why should I care about the disasters that are happening around you in other countries? The reason you should care, if nothing else, is that because when it gets to 60 degrees in the Middle East or in North Africa and people can no longer live in those regions, those people aren't just going to disappear. They are going to have to go somewhere. And so what we'll see increasing in the next uh, decade, in fact, it's happening already, is the, uh, the number of climate refugees will increase. But also when uh, people leave a region and can't come back because of critical Da damage that's been done to the, the, the eco-structure in there. Um, a whole culture is lost with that as well, and a whole history goes down with the people. So I think in, in, in many ways, uh, this is not a crisis that can be compartmentalized into separate countries, and you know, the, uh, country X is affected worse than country Y. It is a global effort that we need to make to, to, to tackle these issues. Absolutely. So it's about not just thinking about ourselves, it's about thinking about the whole world. And it's really uh, crazy, like this, the term of climate refugees has, has wasn't here a few years ago, you know? It's quite a recent thing. We're used to see people migrating for political reasons, for safety, because of wars, because of, uh, you know, major different things that are mostly, you know, um, human actions, yeah. uh, and then now we see climate refugees, which yeah. is also yeah. a result of human action. Well, exactly, and I mean, just look at what happened to Europe when uh, there was a war in Syria. We had millions of refugees come into Europe, obviously, you know, who had to get away from the danger zone, and it caused chaos in some countries. It caused the rise of nationalism and, and right-wing political parties. Uh, it caused uh, increased racism in those countries because not only was the, the, the society in those countries not geared up to have an influx of, of people from a different culture, from different countries come in, 
but also because it was it was a real shock. It was a sudden thing, and this is what we will see with climate with with climate change. People say, oh, it's a gradual issue that you know maybe in 2050 you'll start to see you know parts of the world that aren't livable in. No. Next year, you'll see regions that aren't, you know, that, that can't be lived in. Islands are going underwater. Uh, you know, deserts are becoming hotter. Rainforest is is drying up and dying. So, this is happening now, and we have to act now. Absolutely, you're right. Thank you so much, um, Karina. Do you have anything to add on that? Um, Max touched on a great point with climate refugees, uh, and how is that going to complicate things so much? Yes, indeed. Um, climate refugees is a serious issue which is likely to get exacerbated in the future. Um, I would like to add the point that in addition to all the brilliant points which Max already made, um, we might see the loss of culture, the loss of languages, and most importantly, the loss of knowledge altogether. Because what is happening is that um, there are refugee camps across Europe already and very often in those camps, we see people who are brilliant professionals, like highly educated. We have doctors, artists, engineers, teachers, and a lot of them are staying in the camp without the opportunity to further develop themselves and to pass on this knowledge to others as well. So when it comes to um, addressing the climate crisis, we would need the knowledge of everyone because to address the climate crisis, we need everyone to be on board. We have the knowledge of engineers to address like technological, to, to further develop our technology. We know teachers to spread this knowledge. Uh, we need doctors because there will be like public health implications of the climate emergency. And we need everyone. So having all those brilliant talents stuck in camps rather than helping society is, an, is a big issue in its own right. It absolutely is, and um, talked about knowledge, which brings me to my next question. Uh, how do you think you can? Um, how do we? How can we teach climate change in schools? Uh, climate literacy is a term that we've been hearing a lot uh, the past few days, and this is one of the biggest asks of the youth, um, the youth manifesto, and the meeting we were just attending. Um, how can we educate youth on climate change? Um, is this through curriculum and is, does it have to be its own um, subject or can it be involved in integrated into other subjects or how, what's your view on that? Um, first of all, I personally I think that climate literacy should be embedded in schools and in universities as well all throughout. Um, I, think, I personally think it's very important to adopt an interconnected approach and holistic, as we previously mentioned as well. And for example, currently, uh, we are, for example, people are studying a little bit about climate change in a biology class, a little bit more in a geography class, potentially a bit if you do some economics, but it is very important to study it all together and see the interconnectedness and the linkages between because climate change affects all aspects of society and I think it is very important and empowering for students to see all those linkages rather than, okay, um, we are cutting forests in country A and CO2 levels are rising across the world there is a link between those and it is very useful for people to see it from an early stage in their education. Um, also, I would suggest that climate education is very practical and hands-on. 
and it allows students the opportunity to actively engage, uh, maybe in an approach such as the reverse classroom, where you have students bringing their own ideas and doing activities rather than just sitting on a chair and being lectured at. So I think it's very important to involve and engage young people in a way that it's actually interesting for them and also helps them to develop a problem-solving mentality because in the end of the day, climate change is arguably the biggest question the biggest problem we are facing nowadays and as such having problem solvers empowered problem solvers is really really powerful of course i think you know looking at things like problem solving design thinking it's very important when you want to ch teach climate change because it's not just a topic it's an issue uh, that's very complicated and needs to be looked at as an issue. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Minna, I see you raise your hand. Did you have anything to add uh, there yeah, on climate actually, literacy? I actually just, I want to make two points, one about climate refugees and the other one about climate literacy. So the first one about refugees, because I'm aware that a lot of people aren't aware of how big a problem it is. And it's not a problem that we're going to face in the future. Today, there are four times more climate refugees than there are refugees from crises. So it is a huge problem. And it's not because, you know, people are moving and integrating. Humans have moved around and integrated and cultures have, have evolved over time. But this is a sudden, people are losing the land that they, that they are from. People are losing their livelihoods, their lives. Because refugees, how many make, make it? The four times and the, the, the five parts that we're talking about, these are the people that make it. But they're a small portion of the people that don't. And that is simply unacceptable. So that's what I wanted to, that's the point I wanted to make about refugees because it is something that's very rarely discussed and it is a huge problem and a lot of people aren't aware of how huge it is. Um, the part about climate literacy, uh, we talk a lot about content, so how it will be integrated, but I'm, I'm also a bit, um, keen on skills so in this time and age I think critical thinking being able to discern information that is correct and misinformation and information that is 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 you know propaganda essentially um, that's a critical skill and I think that critical thinking being able to discern having that thought process is a lot more important than just being fed information and subjects and you know science is important and but scientific thinking is even more important and I mean, you were you're from Egypt, right? I'm originally Egyptian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then you're based here in, in, in Scotland now for your education. And um, you know, you you speak both languages, and you're able to get an education in an English-speaking country. We talked about uh, access and making sure that these resources are accessible by different communities and in different languages. Can you tell me more about that? Um, yeah. So. Uh I'm Egyptian, but I didn't uh, go to school in Egypt, so <laughs> I don't actually, um, it was quite funny. I don't know the name of my, the technology that I do my PhD in, in Arabic. <laughs> I, I still don't know, I should probably look that up. Um, I think that there are a lot of resources in one or two languages, and they're the prominent languages, but I think that they should be more accessible. And I think that translation is something that isn't straightforward because there are frames, there are nuances in language and different phrases have different strengths and different powers in different languages. And there's a cultural um, shift in paradigm. Also, if I was to, um, to, to say, if I wanted to 
portray the same message, for instance, in Scotland and elsewhere. I'd prioritize the numbers that I use, the statistics that I use, to make it relevant to the people, to be able to reach out to them, to be able to create that rapport and that um, underlying emotional connection that will open their minds to what I'm saying. So um, being accessible isn't simply about translating from language to language, but it's also the meaning behind the, the science and the information, and also the effect on the person that I'm trying to reach. So, um, I mean, the first thing you learn about speaking or public speaking is you think about the audience. The audience is more important than the content and than the speaker. Absolutely, audience matters more than the content. I love that. I think it's very important. Um, I'd like to move to you, Abdullah. Um, you mentioned something um, in a conversation we were having earlier about uh, making the issue personal. Um, uh, and how can that be done through education? Yeah, uh, a recent report spread out through social media dictated, uh, highlighted certain areas where I'm from, Qatar, Doha specifically, where the rising sea level would overtake. And I think when some people saw this report, it, it mind-boggled them because in uh, uh, 25 years, certain homes, certain areas, certain commercial buildings are going to sink. So I think it's important when you're talking about the climate issue specifically to take a step back and think about how it will affect you personally. For me, my house is in the red zone. And in 25 to 30 years, according to the statistics, we're going to be underwater. So this actually started allowing me to panic in my neighborhood and everyone around me. We're like, oh, we're going to sink. We're going to go down. And uh, the, minister of the, the Minister of Environment of the Marshall Island was actually telling me there, it's a pressing issue. Slowly and slowly, every month, more people are losing their homes, which is something insane. Everybody is impacted by climate change in their own way. You might not think of it now, but um, 1.5 degrees is nothing. 1.5 degrees in Qatar, uh, when, when you say it's 1.5 degrees cooler, it's like, okay, and it's 45 degrees here, 45 Celsius, so what? In Scotland, 1.5 degree hotter isn't gonna make a difference either. It's 1.5 degrees, it's negative three. So you have to think about how this 1.5 degrees will not only impact where you live, but impact how the, the ice caps, how 1.5 degrees can, can make or break the ice caps. And that will cause sea levels to rise and cause several other issues. The Thames could overflow. Places in London could overflow. My house also sits on the Thames. So we could be, you know. So different people have different situations which allow them to think about how climate change should impact them. That's really powerful and connects to what Max was just saying about it being everybody's issue. But it's also important uh, that we relate it to every different community. You know, if I just tell you that, you know, uh, the sea levels are, are getting uh, higher in Antarctica, it's not going to mean so much to you as yeah, it's gonna be your like neighbor's home is about to sink in, in yeah. 10 years from today. So it's very important to look at it from a local yet global perspective. Uh, which brings me to you, Julia. So you're... Italian and you live in Qatar and um, I'd call you a global citizen. Uh, how do you think um, we can mix the local and the global and uh, integrating um, localized curriculum into uh, education that's about you know, climate change? Well, I think, uh, non-surprisingly, I think the answer to everything we've been saying here is involve the youth. Involve us in the conversation because we are the global citizens. We are the ones that are taking action. We are the ones that are setting the initiatives. And yet we have no say in our curriculum. Our curriculum doesn't even exist yet. There is no climate curriculum that is out right now. So the way that we include everything we have said 
is include us in what you're doing, include us in the action, make sure that everything that we've said so far is part of the action, is part of the curriculum. And so me being, being a, local, uh, a global citizen um, should be part of that and I should have some voice in that. But not just me, but the people that I represent here today, the people back in Doha who don't have the opportunities that I have. They're not here right now and that I'm representing. Talk a lot about the opportunity. Um, what do you, why do you think uh, we don't have enough opportunities? You were saying that you know earlier you and um, Sama as well were talking about opportunity and that there is not there are not enough opportunities for youth to be involved. Um, why do you think that? Well, I think that is it's very much restricted to a very small number of youth and in highly privileged situations. And so we're all here today because of the opportunities that have been provided to. Uh, to us, as Abdullah was saying, by Qatar Foundation, by the environment that we live in. But there is a massive divide between what we are able to do and what people in other countries are able to do. So as you were saying, I'm Italian. The people back home, I come from a very small village in southern Italy. The people back home have no idea um, that this is something that they could do with their own voice. And so there is a divide even in uh, what you would say are more economically developed countries. There is this same division that we need to bridge. Um, and so this is one of the main reasons I think that there is a lack of inclusion of people because it's centered around privileged communities. No, that's very important. And uh, I see that Max has had, a, had a, his hand up. Uh, did you have anything to add? Oh, Sama as well? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to add on to Julia's point about opportunity in youth. Um, I think there's an important distinction between um, having a youth sample or delegation at COP26 and having a representative youth sample or delegation because um, like we've mentioned earlier several times actually, um, we're very privileged to be here and we are initially privileged and that's why we had the opportunity to be here. So we are affected to some extent by climate change, but why aren't the most affected? Why aren't their voices present here? Um, there's another thing is we represent youth as much as we can. We represent um, the ideas that we all share as much as we can at COP26, but at the same time, there are people protesting outside today and are their voices taken into consideration is a question that we must ask ourselves because if are their voices were taken into consideration, I don't believe there would be a need for a protest. And so perhaps we need to be reassessing, yes, we have youth at COP26, but do we have youth so world leaders can feel like good about themselves, that they've involved youth voice? Or is it because we're actually being heard and acknowledged? And I think it's something very important that privilege has led us to be here, but perhaps not we're not going to be actually acknowledging this into, and we need a representative youth delegation, not just a youth delegation at COP26 or any other conference. Thank you for that, uh, Max. I completely agree with the, all the points that have been made, and, and obviously we're, we're privileged to be here, and it is probably because we're already in a position of privilege, so we're lucky to be here, but that it comes from privilege. Um, so very, a very good point made. Uh, also, of course, hundreds of, uh, of, of, of members that weren't able to travel because uh, of restrictions, visa restrictions, for example. So some are calling it the most accessible COP ever. I would challenge that and say perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, but I wanted to also touch on a, a, on a point which we raised earlier, which was language. And not just foreign language. I'd say look at the English language as well, because the urgency of the situation is being um, subverted in some ways, because 
what is the difference between saying global warming and global heating? Global heating feels more urgent, and yet we use the word global warming. Now, there was a debate at the time which word to use, and unfortunately, I think corporates pushed for global warming. It sounded like there was more time to act. Same goes for things like hydrogen. We now have three types of hydrogen. We have gray hydrogen, blue hydrogen, and green hydrogen. But we have gray hydrogen to make blue and green hydrogen seem better, whereas blue hydrogen is still not great. Yet by saying that we're not using gray hydrogen, you make it seem like you're doing something better than you actually are. So phraseology and language is really, really important. Words are very powerful and they can change exactly, so much. Exactly, um, they change the perception of, of, of everything. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think looking at uh, not just you know foreign languages, but also your own language is very important. Uh, Galina, did you want to add something? Because I want to open the space to our audience as well for questions. Yeah, this was a really good point about languages. And I just quickly want to add that by distracting the attention, and um, Max, did you say subverting? Um, yeah, so in the words of Michael Mann, um, the slowing down of the process is the new form of climate denial. And I found this really powerful because while we're wasting time on discussing whether um, it should be global warming or global heating, um, gray, blue, purple, yellow, hydrogen, um, we all know that we need to act. And this is the bottom line. Languages is important, it is powerful, but at the, at the same time, we need to just get our act together and act because we have the knowledge, we have the science, now we need coordinated effort and just act on climate change. Thank you so much. That's powerful. It's uh, a multi-sided <laughs> multi effort, I think. It's, it's, not, it's about everyone uh, doing everything. Uh, I want to open the space for questions from our audience. Uh, please. Um, thank you all for being here. Uh, obviously, the voice of youth is so important, and I think it is moving us closer to collective action. But I'm curious from any of your perspectives where you think the voice of youth has, has been making the most impact and where it can make the most impact go forward. Thank you, that's a great question. Who would like to pick that up? I think uh, the voice of youth is making the most impact and being picked up especially by the media. Media is playing a huge and critical point in our lives. I think everyone, everyone, in this, everyone in this conference has some affiliation to social media, media in general, etc. So more young people are accessing this social media, media in general, and they're able to spread things more e uh, easily, and they're able to post and take and capture moments in their lives and spread messages. Uh, there's one of my uh, teachers once told me, social media is a scary thing or a powerful thing. It could be a blessing or a curse. But the good thing about social media is everyone has an opinion. The bad thing about social media is everyone has an opinion. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, it could be a thing where media about the climate is being spread, but also it could be misinformation about the climate is being spread. However, the youth is very keen on spreading the right information, factualizing it, and spreading it. Uh, I remember, I think one of the Mabel members here talked about the misinformation and f spread the fake news. And I think that was a very important, uh, important point. We had a workshop 
lecture in Milan with the journalist Mr. Garcia, as I mentioned before, we, we made a panel just about fake news, and we learned much about him. And the role of youth was spreading it around, I think, in, to answer your question. Ro the youth is most powerful to their peers. So um, I'm here on behalf of the Qataris in my school, and I'd like to thank the Qataris in Doha. And I'd be spreading and I'd be representing them here and coming back and telling them my experiences, what I learned, my role with climate change. And that will hopefully spark some motivation in them, some resilience to what's happening to in the climate and hopefully motivation to push climate action. Thank you so much, Abdullah. That's a great answer. Uh, I want to take just one more question from our audience before we wrap up the discussion. Thank you very much. I think for me, I want to know the two things uh, from all uh, the work you're doing. One, uh, I think we also shared it uh, in the first sessions. We're trying to know the motivation, that what motivates you to continue doing your work. Because uh, I'm, I'm one who, who works with young people mostly, and I've seen most of them still fearing to come out. And today after hearing from Aisha, the first session, I was really inspired uh, if we could get like 10 of them or even get more of them, I think would solve these things very quickly. So I want to know one thing about what motivates all of you and actually wh where you think we need to strengthen mostly as young people in terms of doing this work. Then the other question is, uh, would, you, would you support or push your governments to, to sign on to a declaration if it was there? Because initially there are negotiations that are happening in the rooms are mostly about, you know, SEE updating. So they keep updating every year. We come back, we negotiate. It ends, we update. So we're like, the, the same story happens each and every year, each and every year. So we are not getting anything practical out from countries. So what can we do? Or where you, do you think we can strengthen all our collaboration as young people and maybe push our governments to a declaration, maybe also commit some funding? Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I think just given our time, uh, if we can... Uh, give each one of you like 15 seconds to quickly tell us what inspired you to be here uh, <laughs> and, and, and get uh, to this point. So we just go around quickly. Uh, we have 15 seconds to tell us what inspired you to uh, take uh, climate change and uh, commit to this issue. You mentioned Aisha in your question and I'd like to build on uh, her answer. She mentioned love. Um, and that's, I think, what motivates me. And I, that's exactly what she said. And the love for our communities, for our families, for everyone who is impacted, and that drives us to, um, to fight. Um, and then ending the cycle of empty promises, pushing governments. I would absolutely push my government, the Qatari government, to sign on to any declaration that helps end this useless, absolutely useless cycle. Um, so yes, I think that's my 15 seconds. <laughs> Thank you. One, two, three, go. So, so what pushes me and what motivates me is my country. We're a rapidly growing economy, and we've already we've built our economy on hydrocarbons. However, we're rapidly changing. And more members of the youth are have to get involved and represent us in these events. So what motivates me is portraying my country's struggle and now triumph and turning green and sustainable. And uh, I think my government is pushing me and not the other way around and becoming more green and presenting this message across the world. Thanks, Abdullah Sama. Um, I think to keep it short and sweet, I'd say I believe in youth. And I also believe, like you mentioned, uh, the ongoing cycles of negotiations. Then we say, yes, we're going to do it. And then blah, blah, blah. Next year, same thing over and over again. 
I believe that some ex to a great extent that youth are more capable and competent in making decisions than those in the rooms making these decisions for us. So what really motivates me is knowing that once we're there, we're going to make more of a difference than they have ever in these past, let's say, 26 COPs. Um, I'll try to answer both your questions really quickly. So my motivation is lived experiences. I grew up in the Southern, Ameri Southern Africa and I was born in a year of severe drought and my brother was born in a year of severe drought and the year he was born in was at the entire continent was a net food supporter and for anyone who knows Africa that is insane and his first word was water and his second word was please and we were privileged I don't even want to know what happened to the other children so that is to me is heartbreaking and that's what drives me I know what climate change does and I feel it and these are my people um, the other question about uh, what the negotiations, institution, institutionalized um, diversity. So at local, national government levels and at international levels, so like the UN, I want to see youth and other minority groups in the room making decisions and that's what we should be lobbying governments for. Thank you, Manal. Wrapping up, 30 okay, seconds. Okay, very quickly. In response to both your questions, first answer I would say is what motivates me is the chance to make sure humans don't destroy the world, that, that our legacy isn't that we ruined everything, that, that there is still a chance to, to, to try and rectify some of the wrongs and to mitigate the damage. Um, and in response to your second question, I would say to my government, don't sign on to something if you don't intend to uphold what you're signing on to, because it's better to see that you haven't signed something and know that they're not going to take part in that activity than to be fake and sign on to something and pretend like you're actually doing it. So. Thank you. What motivates me is the love for knowledge and the love for science and also the love for nature. I think it is very important to protect the existing knowledge we have and to build upon it and also to protect ecosystems because the liver world in is absolutely fantastic and yeah, uh, let's protect it as much as we can. Um, and as to your second question, um, I think that all the protests which are already happening is sending a very clear message to governments and we need to, us as a society, we need to show that we care about climate change um, and that if a government decides to implement, for example, carbon tax or any other regulations, we are going to support it because we realize the importance of in the urgency of climate change. Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you to all of you. I'm really inspired today. I don't know about our audience, but you inspired me so much and I'm so proud of everything you've achieved. Uh, thank you so much to our online audience as well for joining us through the power of the internet. I hope this was inspiring and as powerful as it was for me and for our audience in person. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again and please keep in touch with us at the Earth Day Network and Qatar Foundation as we continue to unlock human potential and work together towards combating climate change. Thank you so much for joining us.